Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Insights with Experts. We are pleased today to be joined by author, behavioral psychologist, and all-round dinner host, John. How are you today? I'm, uh, I'm good. It's bright and beautiful in New York. The weather's changing, and I can't wait to finally get to see my friends soon. Uh, so the first question would be, what, what is, I guess, the Influencer Dinner, and what has your journey been like overall? The Influencer's Dinner is uh, probably one of the worst meals <laughs> my guests ever get to eat. It's a little strange. And the reason it's so terrible, or it's not terrible, but just not amazing, is that we invite 12 people to come and cook dinner together, but they have no idea how to cook. And there's a catch. They're not allowed to talk about what they do or even give their last name. Once the meal is ready, they sit down to eat and they guess what everybody does. And they find out that they're with a Nobel laureate, an eight-time Olympian, uh, editor-in-chief of a popular magazine, the, uh, I don't even know what, like a princess or something like that. I've hosted over 2,000 people at 227 dinners in 10 cities in three countries. And when there isn't a global pandemic taking place, uh, I host them just about every month, four or five of them. Uh, and then I've also launched something called Inspired Culture, which is a salon series. And during that, we have uh, about 60 to 100 people come in person, and we have three famous speakers present. It might be Bill Nye, the science guy, or a famous architect like Bjarke Ingels, or maybe one of the former Roots perform. And so it's really turned into one of the most special communities of its type worldwide. And, uh, as far as what actually started it, um, it's kind of silly, to be honest. I grew up really, really unpopular. And I kind of figured that if I could figure out how human beings behave, maybe I could make some friends. And so eventually I became a behavioral scientist. But in the process, I came across a research study by these two guys, Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler. And they were studying the obesity epidemic. They were curious. Does it spread from person to person like a cold or is it a percentage of the population like Alzheimer's? And what they found was shocking. If you have a friend who's obese, your chances increase by 45%. Your friends who don't know them have a 20% increased chance and their friends have a 5% increased chance, which means that things spread from person to person. And that's also true for happiness, marriage and divorce rates, smoking habits, voting habits. So I figured if I could connect with really impressive people, then maybe if I connected with athletes, I would start exercising more and live a healthier lifestyle. If I connected with business people that were really successful, maybe I'd figure out a way to get out of debt. Because at the age of 28, I was overweight. I was recently single. I was uh, heavily in debt. And I was kind of getting tired of trying all the things that are in self-help books, only to find out that, you know, it, it didn't necessarily work for me. Or I'd wake up at 6 a.m. setting an alarm to go exercise and then hit the snooze button because there was no way I was just going to go exercise. And so I ended up developing all these models to understand how to connect with people. And my objective wasn't just for me to connect with them but for them to build relationships with each other 
because if they're extraordinary, I want them to know each other so that everybody's lives improve. And then maybe I'll get a secondary benefit as well. And so my objective turned from just networking, which often leaves people feeling really kind of dirty, to developing deep and meaningful friendships and a sense of community so that people can feel belonging. So you mentioned some of the names that have attended your dinners, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, mm -hmm. other people. I guess, what were some of the most memorable uh, guests or things that have happened during your dinners? Memorable wise, uh, it's not the things that people expect. So yes, I've hosted, I don't know, a whole slew of Nobel laureates, uh, the former director of the Center for Disease Control and also, you know, people who are in Congress uh, and members of, you know, Maroon 5 and uh, celebrities that you'd recognize from television and film and all that kind of stuff. But the, the moments that are, are most memorable, uh, we had a dinner where, uh, where, so during the dinner, you're guessing what happens and uh, not what happens, rather what people do. And we're about to finish what um, we're guessing for one person. And the person sitting next to them says, there's no way you'll remember this, but I messaged you about 15 years ago or 20 years ago at this point. And I asked what I should do with my career. And you suggested that I go into neuroscience. And um, I wanna thank you because now I'm a neuroscientist and this person's a very famous neuroscientist, eight TED talks, all that kind of stuff. And the person he was talking to was Nobel laureate Dan Kahneman who redefined everything we understand about contemporary economics. Maybe not everything, but him and Amos Tversky developed behavioral economics, which showed that human beings don't act rationally. And to kind of bring somebody together with their hero like that was super cool. And that kind of stuff happens every so often. Um, but I'll tell you this, you know, uh, everybody wants to meet like the Oprah's to Richard Branson's, like all those people. And that's great, I'm all for it. But the fact is that their lives are really full. And chances are you're not going to be able to develop a really long-term friendship with them. You might get a really nice selfie, which is fun. Your friends will like it, you'll seem cool. But it's the industry leaders rather than the global leaders that you'll really have the best chance of developing long-term relationships with. And so like the CMOs, CEOs of companies, athletes, uh, business leaders, journalists. And that's kind of where I see the real value because when you can have them as a community, then they end up having a real desire to support one another. So maybe right now I, you know, I invite all these people and frankly, I'd say 97% of them have no like business value, right? Uh, Myself and an Olympian have no business to do. I'm a consultant usually for large companies. But the community becomes so much more rich as a byproduct of their diversity and so much more interesting because and, you know, a CMO doesn't need another 20 CMOs to be friends with in general. But when you can invite them to meet and connect with people from different backgrounds, that becomes a lot more interesting.
So touching about the, I guess, the caliber of guests that come in, I'm sure that, and, and this is a problem that I'm sure most of our viewers or some of our viewers will experience, especially the younger ones. When you're in a room of such people, do you think that there is almost a level of imposter syndrome? And to the youth that are listening, any tips on how to fight imposter syndrome? So let's separate that into two things. And I discussed this in my new book. It's called You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. But I think the first thing to understand is that there's something called Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect found that the less we tend to know about something, the more confident we tend to be. And the more we know about something, the less confident. And the reason is that when we know very little, we don't know all the complexities. We don't know all the way things can go wrong. But when you get to like the top of an industry, you realize how hard it is, how complex, and all the things that are involved. You have a, a sense of complexity and chaos. And so you tend to feel less confident. And so the people at the top often feel the most imposter syndrome. So when you're starting off, you probably feel overconfident. <laughs> That's fine, enjoy it while you got it. But as a human being, you have a right to be in the room. You have a right to a voice, but that should never be confused with experience and knowledge, right? Now, as far as getting over it, I don't know if I can tell you how to do that because I, it's so different for each person. For some people, all they need to do is remind themselves that they're a badass and, and move forward anyway. For many people, they never get over it and still have wildly successful careers because just because you have imposter syndrome doesn't mean that it needs to stop you. But I think that there's something really important about uh, I'll reference another author. His name is Alan Gannett. He wrote a book called The Creative Curve. And he found that things are considered creative when they're familiar enough that they feel safe, but new enough that they feel original. Right? And so if something is too new and out there, then you don't really want to engage in it. It just sounds strange, right? So you hear music by Bjork. Some people really love it, but most people are like, wow, she's an impressive artist, but not my thing. And if something's too familiar, by the 10,000th time you've heard a song, you probably don't want to hear it again, which means you want to hit that sweet spot. It also means that when you're younger, you bring in originality and perspective that people who are more experienced tend not to have. And access to it can be a really special thing because it can kind of hit that creative curve. It can give them an understanding of how the next generation of consumers are behaving. And if you know how to express that in an eloquent, eloquent way, then that's incredibly valuable. And if you can become somewhat of a subject matter expert, that's really interesting, right? So. Jonathan, if I start asking you questions about, oh, what is your views on gender identity or what is your views on consumer behavior? How much does a company's uh, moral and ethical standing affect your actual purchasing behavior? That's a very different conversation than most executives are having because they grew up with a different set of values. 
and they might not have kids or they may, might, but that's interesting. And so the, I think the question is what value can you bring to the conversation that's unique? And it's not necessarily going to be traditional expertise. I'm not expecting you to know about you know, heart surgery, but maybe you can tell me about the world of gaming or the world of streaming or the world of TikTok. And that's fascinating to me. Sort of on the same wavelength, uh, both tapping into the behavioral psychology scientists of things, but also anecdotally hosting these people. Do you have any mm -hmm. tips for students on uh, how to improve confidence, uh, projections, delivery and stuff like that? Sure. Oh, of course. So uh, my lab partner at Kellogg did a study looking at what the greatest predictor of like a startup getting funded. And it turned out to be enthusiasm for the project. Which means that if you don't express enthusiasm for what you're working on, then you're not going to probably win people over. Right? The second thing is, well, I'll give you two things. One is that there's this tendency to be like, oh my God, it's awesome. You're going to love it. Now, some people might view that as arrogant. And so the way around that is to say that you're really proud of it. So if instead of saying, oh my God, like I have this new book coming out, I say, oh my God, it's really good. You have to read it. Instead of that, if I say, I'd really love for you to check out the book. I put a ton of effort into the research and I'm really proud of the result. And I'm hoping you'll find it as interesting as you know, my mother does, <laughs> whatever it is. Then suddenly, instead of being something that you're bragging about, it's something that you're proud of for a good reason. And that changes the, the playing field. The other is that there's also a stark difference, at least in older generations, I don't know about younger generations, in the way that we uh, process um, if we deserve to speak or not. So I have a friend, Kavita, she has this concept called the 60% rule, which is that when men are 60% ready, they, uh, they act like they're 100% ready. But when women are 100% ready, they act like they're 60% ready. And knowing that means that it should have an effect on the way that you act. Um, meaning that women should probably take more initiative when they feel less prepared or have, at least have the opportunity to. Um, lastly, I'll also throw in that, uh, let me think, I can probably give you some other really good ones, some gems. Um, oh, there's this wild study that was done about math exams. And the way it worked was they had a, had a group of women take a math exam and they were split up into three groups. I think it was the first group just took the exam, were tested. Group two were reminded that they were women before they took the exam. And because in America, there's a stereotype that women are worse at math, they ended up scoring worse. But there's also a stereotype in America that people of Asian descent are better at math. And so, when the women who were Asian were reminded that they were Asian before the exam, they actually did better than the average. 
And that's wildly fascinating. It means that we can cue ourselves to behave or perform well, simply based on reminding ourselves of why we're deserving of that performance. It's probably good the study didn't invite me on. I'm an outlier. I'm terrible at math. I'll probably ruin <laughs> the study results. Yeah, I'll probably ruin the study results. Maybe uh, you're amazing at math by American standards, yeah. but because it, there's maybe, a cultural, maybe, uh, maybe maybe the the curve bell curve is too much here. Uh, yeah. I guess in general, the next question would be how has COVID affected hosting the dinners, hosting your saloons, but also I guess your consultancy business. So uh, I'll start off with the consultancy. I lost, I believe it was 72% of my company overnight um, because everybody was canceling events and I work with companies on developing deep and meaningful relationships. I go into this kind of in depth in the book that when COVID hit, I wasn't willing to risk people's lives. It just wasn't a game I was willing to play. So we shut down operations immediately, canceled a whole slew of events. And we haven't done an in-person event since, right? It's been a year now. Um, and so we went straight into researching why do people actually attend events, right? If we wanna run a digital event, why do people actually attend? And the general wisdom is you attend an event to be entertained and to gain knowledge, right? So people are engaging with this media that you're producing across different platforms, either to add to their knowledge or because they find me funny. So, well, I guess we know it's just for the knowledge because I'm not particularly funny or entertaining. Um, and so the problem with that is that if I'm going to host an event on Zoom or something like that, and I just try to give you knowledge, well, you might as well just go to YouTube and get a better recorded version, or you might as well go to uh, Netflix and be entertained by something because you're not going to ever be able to produce the production quality of a YouTube or a Netflix on Zoom. It's just the technology doesn't allow for it. So we have to ask the question, why do we actually attend events? And I would argue there's at least two other reasons, possibly four. And the two main ones are human connection, the experience of being around people, the potential of meeting people, connecting with our friends, right? Most people go to movies together, even though they're just sitting there staring at a screen. If you go to a concert, why would you do that versus just watching it at home on television? And the reason is there's something about being around other people. The second is having a sense of influence. Human beings don't do well when we feel like we have no effect on the environment. When we're at a concert or a show or something like that, we can clap, we can sing, we can scream, we can boo. We have an impact on the people around us. And as a byproduct, it gives us a feeling of influence. So what we ended up doing was redesigning what a digital event will be from scratch. We first and foremost focused on the attendees to give them a sense of belonging, a sense of influence, the ability to connect with each other, and also provide some entertainment and enlightenment. And a lot of that happened through games. So in, in the first weeks, we produced about an hour and a half of content, a lot in breakout rooms, 
so people could connect with each other. We literally invented games so that people could play together and have fun to reduce the pressure because when stress is high, pro-social activities like games, hiking, sports, that kind of stuff actually bonds people and reduces their stress. And so people would come on, we'd welcome them, we'd send them into breakout rooms to meet each other. We'd have two presentations that were super short, really valuable. Maybe it was funny, maybe it was uh, educational. And then we do more breakout rooms where people would get to meet more people and we'd have a game show or a contest. And the winning team would get something absolutely ridiculous. So in America, there's a company called Haynes, Champion, you probably know them. Uh, they make lots of sporting goods and underwear. And so we had the president of Haynes give the winning team a year's supply of underwear. Now that's ridiculous. Like all these people could afford much more expensive underwear but it was silly and fun. And when you're stressed, that makes a huge difference. And so uh, then we'd follow it up with either another talk by a social cause or a musical performance. And then we'd do some more breakout rooms and conversation. When we first started, we planned about an hour and a half of content. By the end of, uh, not by the end, by the time there were like riots taking place in the US, it was lasting five hours. That's a crazy amount of time for 150 people to be engaged. Now, not all of them were engaged at the end, but it was still like 50 people several hours in, which is crazy. So that's kind of how my business changed and also how we evolved the experience of connecting people. We redesigned from the ground up. I kind of go through the specific steps and stages and ideas that are important in my book, You're Invited. Because if fundamentally, if we want to be able to have an impact on the things we care about, it's going to be a byproduct of who we connect with and hopefully in a meaningful way. Uh, touching a bit about what you mentioned about having to adapt to online uh, events and stuff like that. Do you think whether like scientifically, empirically or anecdotally, there, there are different tips for engagement and attention in a in-person event and uh, online event in terms of me as a speaker speaking online in person staring at the camera are there any like simpler tips than that versus planning out games uh, there's i take my video tips from video game streamers All right so even you look at my microphone this is like a gaming mic it can do this um and the reason I say that is that these are people who need to keep an audience of potentially thousands entertained for hours on it. And so, I mean, if you really look, they'll have a good view and good lighting and there'll be dynamic positioning, meaning that you're not necessarily always seeing everything from the same angle. It's something I call perspective fatigue, which is as a human being, we're not really used to just staring at one angle continuously and then hoping that it'll all, like, not rather hoping, but uh, it's, it's just not dynamic or interesting to us, right? And so uh, what I do is I look at how to add a dynamic angle or perspective and so on, so that way it feels fresh and it kind of resets people's viewing. 
The other thing I would say is, how do you make it interactive? Are you using poll features? Are you asking questions? Because if it's not interactive, if it doesn't have that sense of influence, it's not going to be enjoyable. So rather than just saying the happiest place on earth is whatever it is, I will launch a poll that asks, which of these places do you think is the happiest place on earth? Now, there's a careful medium. You don't want to be answering your question every three seconds, but it gives a dynamic feeling to the experience. And then as far as um, actually speaking, I mean, in your case, I'd increase your lighting, I'd add an O-ring, I'd look at potentially having an SLR camera. There are all these like simple things. I'd probably use my cell phone as a camera and those programs are either free or super cheap and it'll super upgrade the way that you're viewed. Um, anything else specific you're asking about? I mean, I'm happy to answer. No, no, I think that, I think that basically answered it. Uh, jumping to your consultancy work, uh, and this is a multi-part question, but are you finding- Ooh, good, <laughs> I hope I get them all right. Uh, it, it's all along the same line, just different tensions. Uh, are you finding any trends in terms of companies adapting towards uh, COVID? Uh, oh yeah, for sure. Disruptive technologies and stuff like that? Disruptive technologies, I'm not sure. Um, I've tried to play with a lot of second screen tech, second screen would be, uh, or shared screen tech. So I'm not sure if you've ever played with Kahoot, which is an, a program that allows you to essentially create a game show. And I think that kind of technology is amazing. And if you run a lot of events, I think it's worth getting subscriptions to that type of stuff. I don't particularly love some more than others. Um, but I think it's great that they exist. Uh, other than that, there's technologies out there that are trying to produce rendered environments where you walk around so that you have unequal sound. And that might sound a little strange, but if you have 50 people on a Zoom, you can see almost all of them in one screen now. And the problem is that all you can hear them all equally. Now it might seem strange that I would call that a problem, but in reality, that will never happen, right? You generally be able to hear the people closest to you better. Now, the reason that's important is that it means that Jonathan, I could pull you aside and have a conversation even in a room with 50 people, and we could have a private intimate conversation. That doesn't exist on Zoom. So I think there are companies trying to solve those kinds of problems. So what if we were in a rendered 3D environment and much like in normal in-person reality, you'd be able to hear me better than the person who is rendered theoretically 20 feet away, right? So I think that stuff is kind of interesting, but I don't know if it's really going to be how things work out. Um, but in terms of trends, uh, there's a whole bunch. One is companies are really concerned right now how to give people a sense of belonging. In America, and I go through this a lot in my book, uh, in 1985, the average American had about three friends besides family. By 2004, that was down to about two. Now, this is pre-social media. It wasn't like staring at your cell phone, which didn't really exist back then, was the reason that we're being disconnected. It was probably mostly due to people moving away from home for work. So you live in Singapore, if you suddenly decide, okay, I'm going to 
work in the Philippines for a company, then you're going to lose a lot of your friends as a byproduct. And that's probably why we've become, or one of the many reasons we've become lonelier. Uh, the problem with that is that loneliness is on par with about smoking a pack a day of cigarettes in terms of the impact on our, our health and wellness. That's pretty crazy. By being lonely, you're literally cutting years off of your life. And so companies are now really concerned with how to give people a sense of belonging and connection while at a distance. And they also understand that some people will not be returning to the office once everybody's vaccinated. People are going to want to stay disconnected. So now there's a problem of, will the people who work in the office be considered the real employees, while the people who work at home were on conference calls and Zooms with them considered like the second status because they're not getting to bond with everybody through hallway conversations and water cooler conversations. So that's all of this is to say that companies are really concerned with the health and mental well-being of their employees, especially because if they feel less connected to the company because they're isolated, then it, they might want to move to another company and then they've just lost a lot of talent and that's really expensive. So I think that there's a lot of trends and a lot of problems we're going to have to tackle. And most of them, not most of them, but a lot of them seem to really come down to human connection. Uh, same question, but for individuals. Individually, uh, do you think there are changes to our behavior, attention span as a result of COVID, the use of technology to learn to do business? So I think in terms of doing business, one of the biggest barriers we had was connecting with people to begin with, All right? So as a salesperson, getting the attention of a customer, when you want them, when they're at the point of purchase, I'm not just talking about like an ad on Facebook. I mean, let's say I produce human resources software, right? I work at a company that makes great human resources software. And I want to get the attention of a customer. Most of the people I reach out to will have no use for it on that day that I reach out. So they'll mostly ignore me. Now, if you can somehow get somebody on the day that they are actually looking for something like this, then maybe you have a chance. But right now, everybody's over-zoomed, overworked, over-emailed, and stressed out. And so why on earth would they take a random email from a stranger trying to sell them something? And so we have to reimagine the entire process of how we connect with people. I go really deep into this in the book and give examples on how to do it for sales and marketing, company culture, social causes and nonprofits. And we have to understand the people's brains mechanics. It's setting a standard email won't work. Human beings respond to novelty when things are new and different. And it actually triggers a response that causes us to want to explore and understand what we're seeing or hearing or what the experience is. So personally, I'm a big fan of getting people's attention by understanding the mechanics of how people work. And then once I do that, it's about how do we build deep and meaningful relationships quickly? Because once I have your attention, I want to engage with you. And so in general, human beings have it backwards. They think that like, okay, Jonathan, let's say I really want to win you over. I'm going to get you like 
a really cool gift or a swag bag at a party or like take you out for a nice dinner. Now, if you think for a minute, an executive at a big company can't afford their own dinner, that's silly. That kind of stuff doesn't tend to work. But what does work is something really weird. It's called the Ikea effect. And the Ikea effect states that we disproportionately care about our Ikea furniture because we had to assemble it. Anything we invest effort into, we care about disproportionately. And that's kind of crazy. That means that we need to let go of all the things we used to do to try to win people over. And instead, we now want to figure out ways for them to invest effort into us and our brand. So what does that actually look like? Well, at the influencer's dinner, we get people to cook together so that they end up caring more about the experience and each other. Now, that's generally not gonna work online because it would be a terrible lift and shift, meaning when you take in-person experiences and put them online, they tend not to work. But instead, what we do is we create teams and play games and do activities. As a byproduct of playing together, people end up caring more about each other. The key is that it has to be something you actually enjoy because by the fourth time, you're going to start hating it and not wanting to do it anymore. And that's just going to suck. So you want to create some kind of experience that will cause people to put in effort that you actually enjoy participating in so you can bond with that. Going back to your, I guess, you as an individual, uh, I'm right that you enjoy traveling and you have done crazy events like the Grand Prix, Burning Man, and stuff like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess on a personal note, what were some of the countries you enjoyed the most? What were some of the events you enjoyed the most? And how did you like Singapore? <laughs> so I, uh, the place I loved the most was Antarctica. Penguins are awesome. Anybody who tells you otherwise is a jerk. Uh, other than that, huge fan of Iceland. Uh, where else have I been? I was, uh, I mean, there's so many beautiful places on the planet from Indonesia and, uh, and the Philippines to, you know, Israel or Stockholm, Sweden or whatever, right? Like every place has something special to it. Uh, when I went to Singapore, I think it was two and a half years ago or so, it was for New Year's. And we had phenomenal food, which I think you're not surprised that Singapore has great food. Uh, Ronnie Chang from The Daily Show, do you know the, the comedian uh, who grew up in Singapore? Uh, although, is he Australian? Anyway, whatever, his wife's Australian. Um, uh, always talks about the best street food in the world is in, is in your uh, country. Um, so, uh, I think that that's probably what impressed me the most. Also, how good your air conditioning is at malls, because it is so hot in Singapore. Oh my God, man. How people are wearing full suits is beyond me. Do you agree that Singapore is the best street food? The best street food, did you say? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was real. I was really impressed. Uh, don't you also have like the only street food that's like Michelin, Michelin star stock, yeah yeah I mean so yeah. I'd, I'd say the Michelin people probably have a better opinion of this than yeah. I do I'm gonna go with yes on that then. Mm. 
Uh, so I guess that was countries. What events did you like the most? Oh, wow. Uh, Stockholm has a, a celebration called Midsummer. It's actually across, celebrated a lot across Northern Europe in the Scandinavian countries. It's celebrated on the longest day of the year. And the parties are just great. I spent one of them, it was one of the craziest I've been to, was spent on the private family island of, of the, one of the members of Ace of Bass, that old music band. Uh, and it was spent with like just a bunch of friends. And when I say private island, I mean like literally there's a house on some, you know, there are islands everywhere in Scandinavia. It's not like Richard Branson's uh, place. I got randomly invited through a friend of a friend and uh, they were super welcoming and it was amazing food. And we played Koob, which is this really weird game involving throwing pieces of wood. Uh, that was just a lovely, lovely day. Uh, I went to running of the bulls in Pamplona and I almost died. I was crushed by a bull and ended up having to go to the hospital. That was exciting and interesting, but I wouldn't want to repeat that or recommend getting crushed by to anyone. Um, Burning Man was a mind-blowing experience. It just didn't make sense. It felt like it was outside of reality completely. Um, and then there's a bunch that I'd love to see, like the Tomatilla, which is that tomato fight in Spain, or uh, there's something called the Nomad Games or something like that, where people participate in crazy, crazy activities. One of them is like kind of polo and football mixed together, but with the body of a goat instead of a football. Like the, there's just wild stuff out there that would be interesting to experience and speak to the cultures and understand what's going on. Uh, oh, oh, one thing I definitely want to do is uh, there's this crazy guy named Wim Hof. He's known as the Iceman. Swim in the Antarctica or something like that, right? I, I've swam in Antarctica. I oh, did a okay. two and a half minute, zero degree swim. Uh, I mean, it was two thirds of a degree. Like it was less than one degree, but more than zero. I'm not sure if you feel a big difference between that one and zero, but uh, I did two and a half minutes in that. And that was insanity. Um, the Yeah, Wim Hof is the Iceman and he teaches this breathing technique that uh, supposedly protects you in extreme cold. And so I've been studying it. I hired a private instructor and I want to go and uh, train with him in Poland. Hopefully you will get the chance to do that soon. Uh, I think we're, we're reaching towards the end of the interview right. and we have a question that we ask everyone that come on board and some of them say it's the hardest question they've been asked in their life. Uh, and that is if you have one piece of advice to give to the youth listening, what would that one piece of advice be? Oh, that the fundamental element that defines the quality of our lives are the people we surround ourselves with and the conversations that we have with them. So if you wanna change anything in your life, either surround yourself with different people or change what you're talking about. And uh, fundamentally, your relationships will make all the impact. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. And uh, I can't wait to see this come out. Yeah. And uh, if you need anything else, just um, you can find me at, at John Levy, TLB, J-O-N-L-E-V-Y, T like Thomas, L like Lion, B like Boy. 
and uh, I'm that at all platforms, including Instagram, Clubhouse, Twitter. And your and book, also, your book, oh yeah, my coming book. out soon. Uh, out May 11th, 2021. It's called You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. And I'm really super proud of it. We, I think, put together something wildly entertaining and, and really extraordinary. So I hope you all pick up a copy or 10 if you want to make my mother proud by hitting some like bestseller list. So. Thank you.